So we continue on here in Matthew chapter 8 to give us some context here this morning. Uh, We have come out of the Sermon on the Mount. We have moved into Matthew chapter 8. The Sermon on the Mount turns into the Sermon on the Move. We saw last week that Jesus begins um, healing. And specifically, he expresses his power in healing those who are the outcasts, those who are the outsiders. Last week, we saw he healed a leper. He heals a a, a Gentile servant, and he heals a woman. Now, for a moment, let's stop and think about the story and what we expect would happen. Jesus has given probably the greatest sermon that has ever been given on the face of the earth. After that, he begins healing people of their diseases. When you come down to Matthew chapter 8 and you look in verse 16, you see that after those three that he healed, there were many more that come that he heals. He's healing many, many people. He gives this great sermon. He begins this healing ministry. What do you think was going to happen? It's a great sermon, this healing of these people. What happens? Well, Jesus starts to draw a crowd. Jesus draws a crowd. Now, if you think about what it's like to draw a crowd, I don't know if any of you have ever somehow drawn the attention of a massive amount of people in any sort of way. I have no context for that. I don't know what it's like to uh, draw a crowd. Clearly, there's only like 12 people here, right? So I clearly have no idea what that's like, right? Um, I don't know who would. I guess you'd have to think about, um, you know, our modern-day celebrities or folks like that, right? You know, you've got the, the paparazzi and the people clamoring around. You've seen those scenes, right, of a famous person getting out of a limousine and going into a hotel, flashbulbs going off, throngs of people screaming their name, right? I mean, this is, is what it's like. And... I imagine there's something like that going on here with Jesus. He has given this sermon. He begins healing, and the crowds begin to form. But is there a difference between Jesus and and these crowds that are forming and maybe some of the modern celebrities of our day? I think there is. Because different from them, Jesus is not very much interested in merely drawing a crowd. He's not interested in having people follow him. He is interested in having followers. He's not interested in merely having um, fans. He wants followers. He's interested in people like the leper that we heard about last week and the centurion we heard about last week and Peter's mother-in-law who we heard about last week. Who are those people? Those people who call him what? Lord. And get up and serve him. In other words, what is Jesus interested in? He's interested in disciples. He's interested in making 
disciples. And the passage that Lucas was so kind to read for us this morning is a passage about discipleship. What does that mean? What does, what does and doesn't a true disciple of Jesus look like? But if you look at these examples um, in the passage, it's really focusing on the negative examples. Jesus sort of shows us, teaches us, if you will, how not to follow him. How not to follow him. And the first example we see is that we are to follow Jesus without pride. So the first example is of a scribe that comes before Jesus. We see it in Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. And what do we see? It says, a scribe came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's a very fascinating response by, by Jesus. doesn't seem to make a lot of sense based on what the man told him, and we'll get to that in a second. First, let's think about what the scribe says to Jesus. I think first we need to maybe understand what a scribe is. That'll help us. It will give us some context. So a scribe was a biblical scholar or teacher. You can think of a scribe as an expert in the scriptures. And in Jesus' day, to be a scribe was to have an occupation or a role that garnered respect. It was a very respectable profession or occupation, right? Think of something like, you know, being a doctor today, right, and kind of the, the connotations that go on with someone that, that is a doctor, right? a certain level of respect that is given. To be a scribe, it required intellect. It required skill. So a scribe was, was you know, highly esteemed by his society. And I believe the scribe in this story knows that and knows it well, and may even relish in that. So what do we see? What's the first word out of the mouth of this scribe to Jesus? It sounds fairly innocuous. It sounds fairly respectful and honorable. What does he call Jesus? Teacher. And he's even willing to what, say what? To, to follow this teacher, Jesus. Now, here's where a look at the Gospel of Matthew will help us a bit. In Matthew's Gospel, five times, Jesus is called teacher. You see it here. You'll see it again in in chapters 12 and 19 and 22. And whenever you see it upon the lips of someone, teacher, addressing Jesus, it's on the lips of someone who isn't or won't become a disciple. So we already have a hint with this title, teacher, that that the scribe is addressing Jesus with, that however respectful it might be, that there is something that is quite not right with this man's faith. Now, you might look at what he says and say, well, what, 
what did he, what did he say? What, did, what, did, was, what was wrong in what he said? What could be wrong with saying, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go? Even today, it's hard to find someone who will go out in public, in the public square, and publicly demonstrate their willingness to follow Jesus. So what's, what's the problem? Well, I think Jesus can see beneath the surface. And on the surface, there is this man's pride and obliviousness which lies underneath the surface that Jesus is, is bringing out here. And I think we know that by the response that Jesus gives him. Because Jesus gives himself a title in his response, which is what? The Son of Man. So when Jesus says that, he's, he's bringing out this pride issue in this man. And then he talks about, really, his own poverty. He says what? I have nowhere to lay my head. And this is striking at this man's obliviousness to the cost of discipleship. Now, what he says, right, it's tough to, you know, to read into it, but you could say this with humility, I think, right? Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You could also say it with a high sense of self and confusion about the nature of the kingdom. I don't know if you've ever gotten a text like that, and depending on how you read it, it could go any one of different ways. But you, you could also say it with that. You could also say it something like this. Teacher, listen, as one Bible expert to another. I've noticed the team you're putting together. Fishermen. Lepers. Roman soldiers. Middle-aged women. You know, maybe you could use someone with some respectability on your team. Say, someone like, someone like me. Jesus, this is your lucky day. You know why? Because I will follow you. I, I will follow you. It's all about the emphasis, right? I will follow you wherever you will go. And where will you go? I hope it's into battle. Because these Romans... You know, they need to meet their match. So I'm with you 100%. Let's do it. You and I can bring about this kingdom that you have been talking about. Now, maybe I'm off base, right? Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe, it's, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. But I think there is something, I really do think there's something negative about the manner in which Jesus is addressing this scribe. Because stop with me and think, who is the subject of verse 19? Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Let's compare that. Let's go back to last week and compare that to what the leper and the centurion say for a moment. What does the leopard say? Lord, if you will, 
you can make me clean. What does the centurion say? Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. What does the scribe say? Teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. The scribe talks about what he will do. The leper, the centurion, they talk about what Jesus can do. More than that, you know, I think we can think that Jesus' response to him is somewhat negative because of what Jesus says in his response, right? Verse 20, what he's really saying is, you don't know who you're talking to and you don't know what you're talking about. When Jesus talks about foxes having no holes and, and, and he talks about him having no place to lay his head, when he refers to himself as the son of man, what he's saying to this man is you don't know who you're talking to and you don't know what you're talking about. Foxes have holes, birds have, airs, uh, have the air of the nests, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What is Jesus saying to him? He's saying, listen, I'm the son of man. I am not merely some scribe like you. I'm not just a marginally better Bible teacher. I'm the king that Daniel wrote about. That's where that title, son of man, comes from. I'm the king that Daniel wrote about, the one who will be given absolute dominion over heaven and earth. Hey, scribe, go read Daniel chapter 7 when you get home because you don't know who I am. And you certainly don't know where I'm going. I'm going to the cross. Are you willing to follow me there? Are you willing to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me? Homelessness is going to be the least of your problems. You may or may not have a roof over your head if you, if you follow me, but there's more than a house to leave behind. See, Jesus sees the, the, the manner of this scribe's faith and he sees what he says, and he knew that at the heart of this seemingly bold declaration that this scribe says was really self-love and not self-denial. Not a willingness to be powerless, but rather a desire for power. Not a willingness to be without power, without a home, without esteem, without possibly a life. See, Jesus, he does not want fans. He wants, he wants disciples. He's looking for disciples. And here Jesus says that he, he won't accept this scribe who comes with pride, who comes without humility, who comes without recognition that the road to the cross lies ahead. So how not to follow? Well, we should follow without pride. We should also follow without compromise, right? Because we see the story's not over. 
Here comes another man, right? Verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's pretty candid from Jesus. That's pretty straightforward, right? That's pulling no punches at this point, right? So if the scribe, like, let's think about the scribe. What are the scribe's problems? The scribe has issues with what? Pride and this obliviousness to the cost of discipleship. What is, what is this man's problem? What is this man's problem? It has something to do with money. It does. Now, you might say money. What are you talking about? Right? It doesn't say anything about money. It says, I'm going to go bury my father. What's wrong with that? What's that? What does that have to do with money? So the key to understanding Jesus' reply, which seems uh, somewhat insensitive, is to really understand exactly what this man was asking. First, we need to think about this. this. If his father had really just died, he would not have been there following Jesus, at least on that day. We know in Israel... It was the custom that the dead were required to be buried on the same day that they died. So that's not it. So what's going on? When he says, let me go bury my father, he's actually using a, what's more like a figure of speech for that Near Eastern culture. We use figures of speech all the time in our own culture, in our own language, right? There's hundreds of them. It's raining cats and dogs. We, don't, we have no expectation that there will be cats falling out of the sky, but we say that, right? Um, you know, I'll give you a piece of my mind, right? No expectation we're gonna literally go into our brain and take a chunk out of it and give it to somebody, right? These are figures of speech. We don't take any of these literally. So what does this mean when he says to bury, he, Burying one's father, that phrase, right, that, that idea is a figure of speech saying, to f- let me fulfill my sonly responsibilities for the rest of the time that my, my father is alive and having nothing, nothing to do with his imminent death. So when he says this, what is he actually saying to Jesus? It's really a request to put discipleship on indefinite postponement. He's not talking about days. It's more like years. What is he saying? If we were to, you know, contemporize it a little bit. Really, this man is saying, Jesus, I will follow you soon, however, I have an obligation as a son to, you know, help my father with the family business, and if I don't, when he dies, whenever that is, I might not get the inheritance. So Jesus, I can't afford to follow you right now, but I will in time, once Dear old dad, right, kicks the bucket. He's dead and gone. 
And once that inheritance money comes in, then I'm all yours. But there's a financial security thing right now. You understand, right, Jesus? See, I imagine that this man heard what the scribe said and what Jesus said to the scribe. And here's what he's thinking. If I follow Jesus now, where am I sleeping? Outside. But if I go home, wait for dad to kick the bucket, and then get the inheritance... Then he's saying, well, then, then Jesus, I'll build a house and you can sleep there. And we'll make that corporate headquarters and we'll pro- proclaim the kingdom from there. But right now, all of this, it's beneath me. I need to make this situation a little bit better before I follow you. Jesus, you understand, right? Wrong, Jesus says. What is Jesus really saying with his spots? It's it's kind of funny. He says the first guy, the scribe, the first guy was too what? Fast. What's he saying to this guy? You're too slow. I turned away the first guy. I don't want anything to do with pride. It repels me. My kingdom will do just fine with fishermen and tax collectors. I don't need kings, intellectuals, celebrities. I knew what was in the first guy's heart, and I know what is in your heart too, he says to this man, really. So I'm inviting you to love God and to not love money. Jesus is saying to him, discipleship is always a present thing. It is always a present obligation. So he's really saying to this man, right now, you you need to make a choice. And let me help you make the right choice. What does he say to him to help him make the right choice? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. That is a vivid picture if you have ever heard one. Because when Jesus says that, he's showing us his very unflattering view of the world. Because what does he really picture the world, the world like? Dead men walking. What does he really say? Let the dead bury their own dead? He's talking about something that literally cannot happen, right? What is it? Corpses burying corpses. That's what he's saying. What does he mean? He means that the spiritually dead will take care of business. They'll make sure that all of the worldly matters are taken care of. But we must put the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, knowing that what? All these things will be added. So if we choose this world, what are we choosing? Death. And if we choose Jesus, what are we choosing? 
life. Now, it doesn't tell us what happens to the scribe. Most likely, he goes away, right? Somewhat, I don't know. We also don't know what happens to this second man that comes. But I imagine that he walked away with money on his mind and money in his hand, right? But without Jesus. So how are we not to follow? We're not to follow um, out of compromise, without compromise, without pride. We're also to follow without fear. We see in verses 23 to 27 that Jesus' disciples follow him into a boat to a journey on the other side of the lake. And again, this is 23 to 27. We're not going to go in depth onto this story this week. We're actually going to get into it in depth next week. And we'll revisit it along with 28 to 34 next week as, as well. But for now, I just want to focus on the fear of the disciples and Jesus' strong rebuking of them. Okay? So if we look here, at verse 23, it says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Then behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great Calm, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? Even the winds and sea obey him. There is a, really a lot that is going on here. We'll flesh out a lot of this next week. But for now, I want to focus on verse 26 and the lack of faith in the disciples. And we're going to keep on focusing on what we have been focusing on today, which is, well, in a sense, how, what? Not to follow Jesus. How not to follow. We do it without pride. We do it without compromise. And finally, here we see, we do it without fear. Without fear. Now, when you look at verse 24 and 25 and you see this situation, and you think about that boat and you think about that storm, if we're honest, who wouldn't have been afraid? Now, you might be here going, yeah, I, I wouldn't have been afraid, but I don't know. Who wouldn't have been afraid? I mean, have you ever just got stuck outside during a very intense storm? Or have you ever just been even been driving in something that was beyond, beyond crazy? Or maybe you've been on a boat in a situation like this. I don't know. But I, I think it, it's, it's somewhat natural, right, to be afraid in, in these situations. So I think first, it's, I think it's important to understand that Jesus is not addressing fear like this Fear in an ordinary sense. Fear in a necessary sense. But I think really what's going on here is we're talking about 
excessive fear, excessive fear. Fear that pushes faith in God out the back door. Fear that does not recognize who is in control. Fear that doesn't acknowledge who's on board the boat. Now, Jesus in verse 26, it's a, and it's a very sharp sort of rebuke that he gives them, really is saying that they should have known something about his divine authority enough to trust him even in this situation, right? That seems what's to be what's behind what he says. What does he say? Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And, and although I, I don't think they should have maybe been able to see the whole big picture, they should have been able to see who was sleeping on board and why he was able to sleep through such a storm. Right? Because eventually they wake him up and what do they say? Lord, save us. We're being destroyed. That's the sense in the original language. We're being utterly destroyed. And Jesus' response is important. I know, I know we hear the rebuke, but the response is important too. What does Jesus do? He takes them where they are. Weak faith and all. He doesn't say, you want me to do what? You know, hey, listen, guys, I'm not stopping this storm until we see some real faith around here. You know, wake me up again when your faith is stronger. And then, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He hears their prayer. He hears their prayer. He stops the seas. He stills the storm. And it shows us that even little faith, right, is still faith. But the point here for us, and this is important, is to remember and not think that Jesus is somehow flattered by weak faith. That's important for us to recognize. Because I think sometimes we might get into a mode and a mentality to think that he is somehow flattered by weak faith. But look into the, think of the Gospels, think of the Gospels for me, uh, with me for a moment. Think of the, the Gospel story. Think of all four Gospels. Can you find me any place where Jesus is enamored with or flattered by weak faith? I think of Peter first, right? Think of every encounter that Jesus has with Peter. When Jesus says, when Peter says something bold or brave, right, when he knows what he's talking about, what does Jesus do? Jesus commends him. When Peter starts to cower and compromises, Jesus never says, and I think sometimes we wish he said this, but Jesus never says, oh, Simon, you know, you poor soul. Faith is hard, I know. That's okay, just try again. Yeah, Jesus understands weak faith, 
He, he understands it. He never commends it. He never commends it. And that's something we need to see here. That when we talk about faith, it is to be without fear, right? Or to put it positively, to think of faith as a form of courage or bravery. Do we ever think of faith like that? I think often we do not. But here's the thing. The Bible consistently does think of faith that way. When you look in the New Testament, faith is not just passively accepting truths that just believes. Rather, faith often in the New Testament is depicted as courageous confidence. This idea that Jesus is always equal to the task. That Jesus is always up for the occasion. Think back to the, the faith of the leper. Think back to the faith of the centurion earlier on in Matthew chapter 8. Think about the confidence in Jesus. I think we said last week about the leper that his faith was this perfect blend of what? Confidence and humility. Lord, you can heal me, will you? Or go to Hebrews chapter 11 and read about the heroes of faith, the, the, the great cloud of witnesses that surround us. Take some time. Go read Hebrews 11. What are the examples of faith in that chapter? What are we told in that chapter? We're told that through faith, some conquered kingdoms, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched fire, escaped the edge of the sword. In Hebrews 11, we're told that through faith, others suffered mocking and flogging chains and imprisonment through faith they were stoned sawn in two killed with the sword through faith they were destitute afflicted mistreated this is all in hebrews chapter 11 through faith some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life Hebrews 11, talking about faith. Courageous confidence. Or think about the, um, the book of Acts. And think of the, some of the things that are recorded in the book of Acts about these, some of these same men who are on this boat right now. In the book of Acts, we have recorded for us the, the history of the early church after the resurrection. What do we see? We see Peter and John. What do, they, what do they do? They boldly declaring the gospel in the temple, and they suffer persecution because of it. Think about Paul. He's an example of this fearless faith. 
What does he say in Philippians 1.21? For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And right before that, in, in Philippians 1.20, he talks about not being at all ashamed and having full, what? Courage. Courage. I think often we don't meditate on or think about that aspect of faith, the courageous aspect of faith. Do we have faith? Do we have full courage? As we come to close uh, this morning, when you think about um, courageousness when it comes to faith, um, we, could, we could go to a lot of examples um, in our present day even, right? We know there are many places that are hostile to the, uh, to the gospel, many places where um, Christians are operating in a, in a uh, courageous faith that is um, really remarkable. If you go back in church, church history and you look at the first three centuries of the church, just look at the first three centuries of the church, if Christians were known for anything in those first three, what are, what are Christians known for today? I wonder if they would pick one thing, right? But in those first three centuries, if Christians were known for anything, they were known for their courageous faith. We have so many accounts of the early Christian martyrs. They tell the stories of many followers of Jesus who, who demonstrated this uh, courageous faith even unto death. We have uh, so many um, stories that are recorded for us. Um, I wonder if I might share one with you this morning. So one such martyr that we have a record of was a woman named uh, Perpetua. Her name was Perpetua. Perpetua was 22 years old. 22 years old. She was married. She was the mother of an infant boy that she nursed from her jail cell. She was in prison for being a Christian. And all she had to do, all she had to do, was recant her belief in Jesus. Offer a sacrifice to Caesar and call Caesar Lord. That's all she had to do. Recant her belief in Jesus, offer a sacrifice to Caesar, call Caesar Lord, and she's out with her child, back to her husband, we have record of her father begging her to do this, and she refused time and again. And finally, as she's led out into the Roman Colosseum to be killed by a beast or a gladiator, she was singing to Jesus. She was singing hymns to Jesus Imagine the, 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 the courage here. 22 years old. Her last words spoken to her brother, who was also a Christian, were, stand in the faith. Stand in the faith. Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want 
to be a fan of Jesus or do you want to follow Jesus? If you do, that's great. Go for it. But you must know how not to follow and how to follow. It's important. You must follow without what? Pride. Humbly come to him. Serve him as Lord. Not a teach, not just a teacher, but as Lord. You're to follow him without compromise. He's first. Everyone and everything else a far second. You are to follow him without fear. Courageously trust him. Courageously trust him. So I'd invite you to think this morning. We'll be coming before the Lord's table shortly. Think. Think about the presentness of discipleship. That discipleship is always a present obligation. It's not a yesterday thing and it's not a tomorrow thing. Discipleship is a today thing. What of your faith today? Take some time to think and meditate upon it. And even as we go to worship together, let's reflect on not what we can do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us. We can spend a lot of time talking about I and me, but Lord, what have you done? What can you do? What will you do? Let us have our minds uh, meditate upon that. And even now as we go to worship the Lord together. Amen. Amen.